Love it or leave it. How many times have you heard that, RL? <laughs> so often. I mean, you'll hear folks say, if you don't like it here, won't you go somewhere else? But the thing is, this is our home too. We have every right to stay and fight and make it better. Yeah, it's a phrase that's been weaponized to preserve the status quo and to ostracize people who are pushing for change. But one of our guests today introduced me to a new mantra, and it's one that we may need to put on a wrecking t-shirt or something. But she said, to live here, you have to fight. I love that. It captures the spirit of so many people throughout history who fought to make a better South and a better world. And one of those people we've been talking about a lot this year is, of course, Congressman John Lewis. And on the day of his funeral, he actually published a posthumous op-ed offering us one last lesson. Democracy is not a state, he wrote. It is an act. And each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community, a nation and world society at peace with itself. And he also urged us to study the movements of the past, writing, you must also study and learn the lessons of history, because humanity has been involved in this soul-wrenching, existential struggle for a very long time. People on every continent have stood in your shoes through decades and centuries before you. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview. I'm R.L. Nave. And I'm John Hammontree. And in the past few episodes, we've examined some of the ugliest, painful parts of Southern history. Today, we're going to take our cues from Representative Lewis and discuss the history of coalition building in the South. Southerners have built movements that have changed the world. But movement building takes a lot of work. And cut from our history books are the stories of Appalachian white women finding common interests with the leaders of the civil rights movement, or Kentucky hillbillies aligning themselves with Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers in Chicago. Dr. Jessica Wilkerson is a labor historian at the University of West Virginia. She and I spoke about her book, To Live Here, You Have to Fight, and the history of labor movements in the South. And I spoke with Erika Bennett about her work registering and mobilizing young voters in Mississippi. As leader of the nonprofit Mississippi Vote, she gave a masterclass on how to do digital organizing in a very rural state, and in some ways how the pandemic is forcing organizers like her to get even more innovative with their strategies. We also talked about how ballot initiatives like the one in Mississippi to legalize medical marijuana, they might actually boost turnout. So let's go ahead and get started with Dr. Jessica Wilkerson on The Reckon Interview. Okay, Professor Jesse Wilkerson, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thanks for having me, John. Over the last few weeks, our audience has learned a little bit about how some movements have kind of faltered in the South, typically along racial lines. That's not always the case. Uh, we have seen some successful movements, including the civil rights movement, succeed in the South in part by building multiracial coalitions. You've published a book looking specifically at white women leading social justice movements in Appalachia. And I love the title of it, To Live Here, You Have to Fight. And so I hoped we could start by, you know, the origin of that phrase and kind of the birth of these movements in Appalachia. Absolutely. So To Live Here, You Have to Fight is a play on a couple of phrases that were common among these women I write about who lived in, worked in, and were activists um, in the coal fields of Eastern Kentucky. And they were drawing upon the famous phrase by Mother Jones, the labor activist, who said, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. And many women would repeat that phrase. They also had posters of Mother Jones that they would put in scrapbooks. They really used her as a model for their own activism. And, and then there was another woman, a contemporary at the time, Bessie Smith Gayhart, who was an environmental justice activist during the 1960s and 70s. And she said, 
um, I'm going to stay here, but to stay here, you're going to have to fight. And she was speaking to this idea that if people struggled in Appalachian, you know, coal field communities, they should just leave. And she's really digging in and saying, no, this is my home. I'm going to fight for this place. And so really the women that I, that I write about were fighting for their homes and their communities. Um, these are communities in Eastern Kentucky. They're working class, uh, most of them uh, white communities in Eastern Kentucky and then some in West Virginia and Southwestern Virginia. And the period they're doing that is the 1960s, as you say, a moment of multiracial organizing. One thing I found really compelling and fascinating about them is that they saw their own struggles as parallel or sometimes intersecting with the civil rights movement and by 1968, the Poor People's Campaign. And there was an Appalachian movement of, um, you know, they called themselves hillbillies um, who went to Resurrection City and participated in the Poor People's Campaign. And that's you know, one moment that I write about in the book. Well, and that long history of civil rights leaders, not in Kentucky, but being influenced by Appalachian activists in you know, the Highlander School in Tennessee, and even later, the alliance between Fred Hampton in Chicago and hillbillies from Kentucky. You mentioned that they saw commonalities in their struggles. What were some of the issues that women in Appalachia were fighting for? Well, one of the major issues at the time, of course, is the war on poverty that uh, is part of the Great Society under the Lyndon B. Johnson administration. So for one, they are fighting for access to federal resources. You know, some of your listeners may be familiar with the imagery that's coming out at that time that is using Appalachian whites as kind of the, the poster children of the war on poverty. That, of course, didn't always mean, it usually didn't mean that they were getting access to those resources. So um, much like people in, you know, Black folks in the Deep South, they're fighting for access to federal resources. Um, this is an issue of equity. And you know, as I said, they were in the coal fields. The coal fields were undergoing dramatic transformations around mechanization. And also, many families were dealing with disability Many men had black lung disease. The federal government didn't recognize that as a disease. So that's you know, one other thing they're fighting for is just you know, health care issues. And, and then finally, they're fighting for the right to organize and to gain access to power. Again, much like the civil rights movement, especially by the late 60s, where you have Martin Luther King Jr. And then, of course, the Black Power Movement, which has a big influence, especially on Appalachian youth, um, that's saying, you know, we should get access to these resources that belong to all of us, and we should have a say in how these resources reach our community. And so those are just a few of the, the issues that I think lend, you know, they lend themselves to these broader coalitions. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned they had become kind of the face of the war on poverty without being the beneficiaries of that war. And, and I think we see that even still today, that you'll see a lot of national left-leaning organizations kind of pointing to civil rights struggles that continue in the South and continue in, in Appalachia as ways of raising money and raising awareness. But also, you know, are quick to say, well, we should just cut off all funding for southern states if they won't pass a mass ordinance or something like that. And so it's interesting to see kind of that dichotomy of being used without necessarily receiving those federal benefits. Okay, so this has 
everything to do with racial politics. You know, the fact that there's imagery of white Appalachians during the war on poverty. At the time, Johnson was going on tours of places in Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, speaking with poor people, poor white people in Appalachia. And that was, at least in one sense, a ploy to get Southern white Democrats to support the war on poverty. It was a way of pointing at Appalachia and saying, see, we're going to send resources to white people. So in that sense, they're kind of held up as kind of Anglo-Saxon people were descended from the mountaineer. So, you know, we see it in that sense in the 60s. I would say today, Appalachia is often used in the media as kind of white people who are uh, stubborn and they're not willing to vote in their own interests, right? But it's still largely about a racial politics and kind of pointing at Appalachia as the problem that needs to be fixed or the people we can blame for many of the problems that we have. Well, and especially after the publication of Hillbilly Elegy and J.D. Vance kind of making the case that it's about individuals pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. It's interesting to see this historical counterpoint of progress there has always relied on not individualism necessarily, but on collectivism. Tell us what it looked like on the ground when these women started coming together and organizing for these demands. So the women that I write about, uh, many of them were born in the 1920s. And uh, that puts them as young children, and some of them young women, during the labor struggles of the 1930s. And of course, the coal fields of Appalachia were a really significant um, place for the labor movement uh, with the United Mine Workers organizing there and pushing um, Roosevelt on the New Deal. And so many of them had a memory of that. By the 60s, they're drawing upon that collective history, the fact that many of their fathers and brothers were members of the United Mine Workers and that they were supporters of the union. And when the war on poverty begins, they begin organizing community centers. They organize to become members of the Appalachian Volunteers and the VISTA organizations so that they can influence the policies that are related to the war on poverty and so that they can control some of the resources. And so, you know, the history that I write about really pushes back against this notion that people in Appalachia are only concerned about themselves and any problem that they have is based on individual behavior. The women I write about were dealing with that same argument in the 1960s. And the way they responded was to say, look, the coal industry controls everything in our communities. They control state politics, they control local politics, they control the courthouses. And, and they keep wages low and they keep us sick and they keep us tired and disabled. They also pollute the environment. This is not about individual behavior. This is about power and who controls the resources. Well, and a lot of the issues that they were addressing or working to address, I should say, I think would still feel very familiar to people today from domestic violence to childcare, poverty, an economy that maybe feels like it's it's left people behind. Were there prescriptions that they made for those issues that maybe we would be better off if they had been able to get their demands, you know, in the 60s and 70s? Yes, definitely. And I'll give you two examples. Uh, the first is the community health movement. 
And I think this is one of the most important legacies of these women. And for people throughout Appalachia in the South, you know, there's many of the health clinics come from the community health movement. So we see the legacy of it. But what they argued, this will sound familiar to people, is that healthcare should be free and accessible to everyone. And they were able to get funding and support during the war on poverty to set up health clinics that had boards full of local people, working class people, who made decisions about what healthcare should look like in their communities and how to best serve people. It seems like a really novel idea. <laughs> and, and I should also say that the philosophy of the community health movement was that our health is connected to everything else around us. It is connected to the places where we work, our access to education, our ability to access clean water and you know, safe environments. And so you know, they thought about people as part of communities. And so if someone has black lung disease, that's connected to the policies in their workplace. And so those policies need to be dealt with, right? So it wasn't, again, an individual kind of, here's the prescription for this one person, but how do we improve health for an entire community? And so that's one example of something they were fighting for. And then second is they were part of the labor movement. They weren't coal miners, because at that point, women weren't really allowed in the mines into those traditionally male workplaces. But they still saw themselves as um, people who would benefit from a unionized workplace, because that would benefit their own families. But what they were mostly fighting for was access to benefits like healthcare and safer working places, because the mines you know, were often then and still today uh, really dangerous places. And so one thing they remind us of is how the labor movement, or at least the way they envision the labor movement, is that it would have impacts beyond the person who worked at that site. It can influence an entire community and, and impact their well-being. Coming up after the break, Dr. Jessica Wilkerson offers lessons we can learn from history to build our own coalitions today. And Erika Bennett describes a cool modern tech tools voting rights activists are deploying to get out the vote and push messages in their communities. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. My mask protects everyone else, and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So, you know, they're doing all of this, obviously, before the Internet. Appalachia is is a lot like the rest of the rural South and that people can kind of be far apart from each other. So what did organizing look like? Yeah, this is something that I thought about all the time, especially when I was in the archives and came upon all of these underground newsletters that people 
printed um, and organizations in Appalachia printed and distributed. So they would create these newsletters where they could provide information about, say, the latest legislation that was passed. They would cover stories about campaigns in, say, Los Angeles or Louisville, Kentucky. They would then also cover what was happening in their own communities and list all of the upcoming meetings. And if you needed a ride, who to call. What's amazing about them is the kind of breadth that um, these newsletters had in terms of covering the social movements at the time nationwide, but then also what that local variant looked like and then getting people to show up to meetings. And you're right, it wasn't easy. People lived far apart. They lived in rural mountain communities. At that point, there weren't good highway systems. So they would drive back and forth and pick people up and, and, you know, get people to the meetings. I think that's something that we should remember. I mean, of course, it's difficult in the time of COVID. We can't show up in person. But when we can show up again, that if you go ask someone to show up to a meeting, they're more likely to show up <laughs> because you ask. They, people want an invitation. So, you know, that's, that's really how they, they were able to organize the movement. When these groups start kind of aligning themselves with you know, groups of black women and groups of you know, disabled men, how do they stress that partnership? How do they build that partnership? Well, the main way that that happens is you know, first in the Poor People's Campaign, so building alliances with the civil rights movement. But in terms of you know, building um, these cross-race and cross-gender movements, and the welfare rights movement in Appalachia is really the best example of that. This was surprising to me when I started to see it in the archives, because the story that we hear over and over is that by the late 60s, I mean, 68, and into the early 70s, you know, white working class people are not interested in welfare. In fact, they're hostile to welfare. And that's one reason they're moving into the Republican Party. It's not quite that simple, especially if you're looking at Appalachian communities that had been fighting really hard for access to things like aid to family with dependent children, um, food stamps, and Medicaid, and other welfare programs. So I ended up documenting what that looked like between about 1968 and 1975. It's a pretty short period of time where the coalition can hold, and then the backlash is really strong against it, and it ends up crumbling. But in those years, uh, white women who are fighting for welfare in Appalachia are joining forces with black women who are also fighting for welfare in Appalachia, and then with people like Johnny Tillman and other black women in, in cities and urban areas across the country, who are really the leaders of the welfare rights movement in the National Welfare Rights Organization. And many meetings are held throughout West Virginia, especially in Eastern Kentucky, and local welfare rights organizations form. Um, one example is the Eastern Kentucky Welfare Rights Organization. Its members, as far as I can tell, were almost all white, but it did include both men and women, and a significant number of men. And many of these men were retired coal miners. Many of them were disabled, or they had retired early due to disabilities. And, and so it was fascinating to see that they're showing up for welfare rights marches in Frankfort, Kentucky, 
in coalition with black women and you know, white women from Appalachia who are fighting for better welfare payments because they're single mothers raising children. So that story has just really, for the most part, been ignored or erased. And, and while I realize it's, you know, it's a pretty short period of time, it's not a huge swath of the population, but it still points us to the fact that these coalitions can be built and, and that they were successful at the time, that people were willing to you look at one another and say, um, you know, I'm willing to fight for you because you're also fighting for me, that if we have a robust welfare state, we all benefit from that, and that we're entitled to welfare because we're citizens of this country. And that's the argument that they often made. And then they would say, and this just blew my mind, they would say the coal companies should be taxed at a higher rate so that we can preserve the welfare state. Right? They had it all worked out. <laughs> yeah. So what happened between, you know, the 60s and 70s and today where those movements, you know, maybe fizzled out for a while, maybe we're starting to see them kind of resurge. What was it that, that led to their unraveling? Usually the way that I think, especially Democrats and folks who are liberal or progressive, the way they think about it is that it's because white working class people were selfish and racist and voted against their own interests. And it's really the, those individual voters. But what's missing from that story is that there was a tremendous backlash against the welfare rights movement. And we can just look to Kentucky you know, for one example that's really targeting a multiracial movement. Um, it's led by um, the governor at the time, Louis B. Nunn, who was the first Republican in decades to be elected. He holds, I believe it's in 1968, the governor, Republican Governor's Conference in Kentucky. Ronald Reagan is there. He's one of the major speakers, right? Ronald Reagan ends up being you know, the, the leader in fighting welfare. Louis Benin is right there with him. He's giving speeches that are anti-welfare. He also oversees an assault on that movement through his own legislature. So there's a committee formed, it's called the Kentucky Un-American Activities Committee in 1967, I think is when it starts. And the activists call it quack. <laughs> but then they, they, yeah, that, that really upsets the, the legislators. But so that committee first targets black power activists in Louisville who were a part of an uprising in Louisville. And also that was very much wrapped up in the war on poverty and who controlled those resources. And then they turned to the Eastern part of the state and Appalachian communities where they said there were subversives who were trying to take over the state and turn it into a communist state. And they do this all with you know, a straight face they go after some activists, um, accuse them of being communists, imprison them. There's a kind of a moment where there's an assault, an attack on some specific activists. But ultimately, it leads to a lot of fear in those communities. Some of the women that I write about, you know, they, they live in those communities. They're members of churches there. There's a lot of rumors about them. I mean, it was a really painful episode for many of the people who got caught up in it. Certainly there's blame to place on individual voters, but we're really missing the big picture if we don't consider this state-backed attack on these movements, right? The full force of the state came down on them. And that's really, really significant. 
what can we in 2020 recognize about patterns from the past to make sure that we don't necessarily commit the same mistakes that we made before? I think one of the most important lessons from the Appalachian movement and how it kind of fit in to the broader movements of the 60s and 70s is that our movements really need to listen to and center in particular Black women and other people of color and the most vulnerable of our communities, so people who, who are harmed the most by policies. So to listen closely to what they are saying uh, would be the best way forward. I have a chapter in my book about Appalachian women's participation in the feminist movement. And it's an episode where women from Eastern Kentucky who are working class and poor meet with the Commission on Women in Kentucky, made up of elite women who are appointed by the governor. And um, they meet at a courthouse. You know, the women on the commission are really invested. I mean, they, they're there, they, they wanna listen, they hear the testimonies of Appalachian women. And the Appalachian women are saying, look, we care about survival and economic issues. We're not so much in, invested in um, getting access to credit cards or, you know, maybe becoming a leader of a corporation is not exactly like the dream for us. The lean in. But <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, they were the anti-lean inners before that existed. And so, you know, this commission listened to them. But at the end of the day, those kinds of commissions and the kind of feminism that becomes dominant in terms of policy doesn't really help poor and working class women across race. And, and their vision of what equity would look like um, is really sacrificed. I think many of the problems we see today are a result of that. And we can see that across the civil rights movement and the women's movement, you know, what happened to those policies. And um, so that's what I would say is that, you know, when people say they want Medicare for all, and a majority of people are saying that, Let's hold on to that. It's going to be called socialist or communist, but what would it look like to fight for that and to convince you know, people who might have questions about how that would work that, in fact, it's, it's going to be better for the country? So that's what I would say ultimately. And I think um, there is a, a contemporary model for this with the teachers' movements. Right? So in West Virginia, teachers led a movement a couple of years ago as part of the Red for Ed movement, and they're really fighting for access to the common good. Right? They are defending public education and public resources. And I think their vision of what progress and the common good looks like is actually very similar to the women in the 60s and 70s who were organizing. So I hope we can hold on to that. You know, the truth is, RL, a lot of movements fail. There are a lot of powerful interests backing the status quo, and it's a lot easier to divide people than it is to unite them. And yet, Southerners continue to try. So let's revisit that John Lewis op-ed from earlier. He also reminded us that the truth does not change, and that is why the answers worked out long ago can help you find the solutions to the challenges of our time. Continue to build union between movements stretching across the globe because we must put away our willingness to profit from the exploitation of others. And Erika Bennett is one of lots of young people who are building these movements on the ground today. She runs a nonprofit called Mississippi Votes that was already way ahead of the curve when it came to using digital technology to engage potential voters. They're super focused on 
Black and Latinx folks as well as queer identifying people. And one interesting thing that she notes is that even though coalitions are important, groups have to have shared values or those coalitions will fall apart fast. Erika, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. You wear a lot of hats, but I want to start with your with your day job as executive director of Mississippi Votes and give you a chance to, to give your work a little bit of shine. Last I read, in the past two years or so, Mississippi Votes had registered something like 4,000 new voters. And I know a lot of your work focuses on young voters. Can you pull back the curtain a little bit for us and walk us through how modern youth focus sort of voter registration and campaigns work, or at least how they how they used to work <laughs> in the in the times before Rona. So Mississippi Votes is a about four years old now, and I didn't even recognize that, but we're a four-year-old organization and already we have made some incredible waves in youth civic engagement across the state and across the South. So to date, we've registered somewhere between 15 and 17,000 new voters. Many of those folks are black and brown, queer and trans young folks between the ages of 18 and 35, and a portion of the electorate that we often forget about, folks who are in pretrial detention or folks who are in prison but have not been convicted of Mississippi's 23 disenfranchising crimes. And so, yeah, we started in 2016 with this really broad understanding, really abstract, that there were about 445,000 eligible but unregistered voters across the state. And we were just like, you know, 2018 through 2021 in Mississippi particularly is going to change the game, right? There are going to be election cycles that shift um, an entire decade of our lives, right? And so we wanted to make sure that folks who look like us, folks who are young people, folks who are deeply invested in Mississippi, learned and understood the ins and outs of the electoral processes, from definitions to actually showing up and voting on election day. And so Mississippi has about 82 counties. Mississippi Votes has footprints in 32 of them. And not to mention all of our work with colleges and universities. There's 17 colleges and universities. We have students on 15 of them who call us their political home. And so in the age of COVID, people are like, well, how are you all able to do what you all are doing and still keeping people involved? We were always on the internet. So peer-to-peer so -peer organizing and email blasts and having virtual kickbacks was something that we did anyway because you know Ariel you're you've been in Mississippi for a while from Tyler Town to Jackson that's two hours anyway so we can't really travel to see one another um, as much or as often as we'd like to so we had to get creative from the very beginning about how we would engage our people and so this particular election cycle we're trying so many new things so one of the things that's really key to the way that we've been engaging young people and people across the state has been through digital campaigns and digital ads so Every year we uh, launch what we call our Up To Us campaign. And so the Up To Us campaign is a voter registration, voter education, voter protection, get out the vote campaign. Literally our GOTV campaign, right? It's nonpartisan. It's an effort to register and mobilize young people for every election cycle in Mississippi, every means every year, right? <laughs> so typically we we would have chosen 12 priority counties based on the data from the last election cycle that say, hey, here's where people need to be. Here's what the turnout rate was. We want to increase that by 
what, 10%. Cool. This year, COVID shook that up for us, and we were in the process of sharpening our ground strategy, and in the beginning, we were, like, really devastated, but what we hadn't recognized up until very recently was that this opened the window for so many opportunities for us to get creative and enter into communities where we hadn't even thought about ourselves, right? So we dipped and dabbled into music and poetry and really into these pocket communities that folks inside of our actual neighborhoods really look up to and the folks that they get their information from. Like I would probably never go to a Mississippi Votes forum, but I will turn on the radio and listen to Dollar Black. So we collaborated with different artists to get those messages across to say, hey, there's an organization called Mississippi Votes. This is what they've done before. You can trust us. And this election cycle and every election cycle after this is going to be one for the books for Mississippi. Like we can change some stuff. Alongside that, a lot of folks are really excited about our geofencing campaign. Typically, we only do that within the perimeters of our colleges and universities. And that's literally where we capture all of the IP addresses for folks' computers or cell phones, whatever their mobile device is. You, you knew I was going to ask you about geofencing. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, I mean, it's so cool. Yeah. It's literally like whatever geographical location I choose, I can say I want the cell phone numbers or the computers in whatever area this is or whatever age demographic this is and fence people in literally in their geographical area and send them specific targeted ads about the election. And literally people have no choice but to engage with it because we make the X at the top of the thing really small. It's really creepy, but it's fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, you've probably seen a lot of our YouTube ads. Like when you're going to watch the Terrell show, you're probably saying, dang, now I got to make my plan to vote. So like, it's literally an all encompassing plan to really mobilize and engage people in this process. I'm sure you wouldn't describe it this way but I mean it's not easier but like you said I mean you all were already in digital spaces meeting you know particularly young voters where they are and so sort of like these traditional voter registration and and even get out the vote activities you know that we like we know about door knocking like we know about like setting up a table at the at the community fair you know I feel like we have traditionally done those you know like fairly well but like it's also all we've known, right? And then, you know, really partisan campaigns have really excelled in the digital spaces. And so I was going to ask, you know, if you think that in some ways, you know, like not having to like put people on the roads, like driving through, you know, the Mississippi Delta and, you know, Southwest Mississippi, you know, in terms of, you know, registering folks, sort of voter education, at least if that's like made it one less sort of headache, in terms of like, how do we get people's attention? You can be really laser focused on digital strategy. Yeah. So our strategy for our field program has always been multi-pronged, right? Like we've always been heavily digital and heavily like really actually in the field. And so we recognize that, you know, the way that we organize in Central Mississippi and on the coast is going to be super different than the way we do things in the Delta and the way we do it in South Mississippi, where my mom is from. And so because folks like my uncle will probably not know what in the world is happening to his Facebook when he sees a Mississippi Post ad pop up. But 
what he will recognize is if somebody's calling him, he's going to answer. And so we've doubled down on like, you know, we know that folks don't want folks coming to their doors because of COVID. So we're calling folks and having real personal conversations versus like reading a script. Like, of course, there are questions that we want to absolutely know the answer to, but our phone bankers have been trained to not be robotic and to be human and to not just, you know, rush people off the phone. We're not trying to reach a number, but we are trying to make an impact. And so a lot of times people just respond to personal connection A couple of organizations that we partner with have been doing really safe drive-through voter registrations. And so that's something that we're looking into. I'm apprehensive about it because ethics and public health, for me, are top tier. I just want to make sure that people are safe. And so we're trying to figure that out, like what that looks like in the context of the principles that we have at Mississippi Votes. But like I said, there is always, like I said, always been a multi-pronged approach for our field. And I think that doubling down on the way that we engage older voters and sporadic voters on platforms like Facebook make all the difference because people may not see a billboard or people may not hear the radio. But like I mentioned, my uncle in South Mississippi, I have a cousin in the Delta who will definitely be hooked up to Facebook and can log on and see what we're up to in our statewide volunteer group chat where our field manager may be going live on his live cast called Chopping It Up With Jay. And he's talking to community staff stakeholders from across the state. And Hannah's doing these um, conversations with people about House Bill 1521 and like, what in the world does that mean? And what is a ballot initiative? And how is that going to change the gubernatorial elections? Like all these things are happening and people are tuning in um, according to our algorithm. So it's just about knowing your base, getting creative, not being afraid to fail and not being afraid to try stuff. I think that's one of the things that has really been great about working with younger people and um, having a team who's just not afraid to fail or not afraid to just take a risk. And so there's been some things that we threw at the wild that didn't stick, but there's been some things that stuck and that have been game changing. So. Yeah, you've mentioned some legislation in Mississippi a couple times. I mean, without going into all the kind of the weeds of the legislation, what are the big problems that exist in Mississippi that either through legislation or policy, folks are working on to address? So with House Bill 1521, there are specific provisions made for folks who may have, you know, typically there are about eight or nine qualifications that you can check off when requesting an absentee ballot in Mississippi. This year, there's an additional one for this particular election cycle that basically says if you feel like you've come in contact with COVID or if you've been taking care of somebody with COVID, feel like you've got COVID, you can vote by mail, not vote by mail, but vote absentee. They're being really interestingly careful with the language that they're using because all of it is vote by mail from where I see it. But, and then there is the ballot initiative that um, I brought up earlier. So there are, there's initiative 65 and the alternative, which is 65A, basically legalizing marijuana for qualified persons with debilitating medical conditions. And then there's obviously the state flag referendum asking voters to approve or reject the new state flags. 
So you're thinking that the fact that these things are on the ballot might help, you know, energize, particularly in a presidential election year, and particularly this presidential election year. Absolutely. And so it's become really important for us organizationally to participate in what folks like Student Vote, Student Learn, and the Andrew Goodman Foundation are calling National Voter Education Week. And so throughout the week of October 5th, which is the week of the voter registration deadline in Mississippi, we'll pivot backwards just a little bit to go back into like some deep education around these ballot initiatives and making sure that folks know, particularly the folks that we're registering in pre-trial detention and prison, that these referendums like Initiative 65 and the state flag referendum and the removal of the electoral vote requirement in gubernatorial state office elections, the knowledge to these people particularly benefits the state of the voter in Mississippi, the voter education, the the astuteness of the voter of Mississippi. And so we're trying to make sure that people have a well-rounded information bank and they know what all of these positions do, who's holding them now and what that means, right? We have a really important Senate race coming up and the Central District has a really important Supreme Court judge race coming up. So we just want to make sure that the political top lines are explicit in nature to potential voters. I mean, I'm particularly interested in the folks that you're trying to engage in pretrial detention. I mean, they're probably pretty easy to geofence, but you know, most of them are not. They shouldn't be on mobile phones. And so, you know, how does it engagement work from sort of that standpoint. You know, I know in Mississippi and and, and a lot of places, you know, where sheriffs have a lot of a lot of discretion, a lot of power, it's really just up to the local sheriff how interested they are, how involved they want to get in helping engage folks who are incarcerated and not convicted of a, a disenfranchising crime to actually participate in election. The thing about relationships in Mississippi is that you know one person, you know 50, right? And so last year when we were trying to craft a a plan around getting into certain jails or certain prisons, we got a call from someone who had a loved one who was actually in prison, but not convicted of any of the 23 disenfranchising crimes. And that person inside of the prison knew a lot of people inside the prison who were also interested in voting and who were eligible. And so what we did was we got all of the information that we needed in order to send them um, mail and with a step-by-step that says, hey, my name is da-da-da-da-da, my organization does blank, you are eligible to vote. And then they sent us mail back. We walked them through the process of requesting the absentee ballot to vote in prison. And they were able to request and receive their absentee ballot and vote in the gubernatorial election, long story short. And so this year, that looks the same way, right? Except with more people. Last year was like 70 people. This year, we're probably going to reach a little bit more because there's the relationship now. So typically organizations will work with sheriffs or the wardens or the circuit clerks to do that. We have before. However, I think, you know, this time around after establishing rapport with people, there's some trust in um, our process and some integrity in our process that people really value and, you know, want to continue to be in community with. So 
Yeah, I mean, you know, a big focus of this episode is about coalition building and even the best intentioned of nonprofits can, you know, the work can sometimes become siloed because we're just trying to, you know, fulfill our grant deliverables. I think about like some of the the coalitions that you all are involved with, you know, working with, you know, One Voice and the NAACP. I mean, do you think that's changing, getting better, or is there something sort of unique or universal about the opportunities that exist in, you know, organizing people around campaigns that makes, like maybe makes that, you know, dissipate a little bit. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> people, people still out here backbiting, <laughs> savage. Yeah. I mean, okay. So here's what one thing that I've been clear about in my leadership, principles, alignment, and operational solidarity. Like if it's for the good of the people, can you put your ego at the bottom of the agenda so we can get past this and then we can have a peace and contest okay let's figure out where we're in alignment what are our goals moving forward and who's going to hold what work so Mississippi Votes didn't partner with everybody for those reasons because everybody didn't have the same intentions but we are friendly to other groups and a lot of things it's like with coalition work most of the times most of the work will fall on at least one or two organizations when there's like 15 people a part of it. And my team is fairly small, fairly young, and I am really not trying to burn folks out in their first organizing experience and want to create an atmosphere where people can have some boundaries, set clear expectations, and really get a clear understanding of like what their personal values and personal principles are and how they want to engage with people. That's the way that we enter any relationship, any organizational relationship. Does it make sense for the overarching theme of who we are? Because a lot of times coalitions are built based on like urgency and moment. We wanted to do a whole lot of stuff with like education stuff. And so what we could do was provide bodies, right? You have to be clear about what you can do. We want, we never want people to be confused about who we are organizationally. Like our mission, vision, and values are X, Y, and Z. This is what we do. We don't ever want to get off focus. And sometimes joining coalition gets you off focus and you never reach that goal. And so, yeah, we're very intentional, very strategic about how we are placed in coalitions and group work <laughs> for uh, grant goals or whatever it is. Like, that's not that's not what we want to be up to. As a matter of fact, we don't take some funding that have strong stipulations about goals and stuff like that because it's like, no. We need space to learn and figure it out. And if you say we got to deliver this by, what, September 6th, that's not going to happen. One, we live in Mississippi. Two, I don't know magic. This is going to be a broad question, I know. But I mean, aside from the obvious, the pandemics, plural, of coronavirus and unchecked racism, the fact that a lot of people have strong feelings about the president, you know, and now with Senator Kamala Harris as, as possible VP, what are you hearing from the folks that Mississippi Votes works with about What's motivating them this cycle, you know, to vote, to get other folks to vote, but also perhaps nationally? Are there things that we should be looking for that the folks that, you know, you're working with are really excited about that we might not be thinking about? Yeah, I think for uh, Mississippi particularly, there's been a lot of excitement around the possibilities of this election cycle. And I think that young people who 
took to the streets across the state in about 30 something counties across the state to march and to take down these monuments and who inevitably began the conversation again about taking down um, our old state flag. I can say old now. (laughs) I think that energy translates into what people will do and how people will show up and perform on November 3rd. Yeah, I think the young people and their tireless organizing and their uh, moving across generations and across races have been inspiring for for people who want to see change in Mississippi but haven't been really involved in the process before or voted one time and never did it again really I think that you know the the momentum is there or has been there and I don't think it has anything to do with the presidential race honestly for Mississippians I think it's a lot to do with this generational responsibility that folks who are older than me feel like they have or people who are growing up who are a little bit older than me whose little sister was at the protest or little brother, little cousin or whatever came back and said, this happened and it's some stuff that's happening in our backyard that we're not paying attention to. And there's a possibility that we can shift this if we do a thing on November 3rd. And I, I, I think it's a little bit of, a little bit of young people a lot of self-reflection because folks got the time to do it now. Whereas, you know, people who work consistently crazy hours don't really have the time to really sit with their material conditions. But now that the world is at a standstill, we're kind of looking around and we're like, oh, this white supremacy thing is a real mental illness that our country needs to treat. And I think I can be a part of the treatment by showing up on election day. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Well, Rika, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. If there's one lesson to take away from today's episode, it's that t-shirt mantra. To live here, you have to fight. But you don't have to fight alone. Movements happen when people find common ground and demand change. What are you fighting for? Let us know by tweeting at us at Reconciled. Special thanks to Dr. Jessica Wilkerson and Arika Bennett for their time this week. And thanks to you for listening. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, R.L. Nave. It was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like the show, please subscribe. Share the show with your friends and leave us a review. No, seriously, please do this. It'll help us spread the word about all these great stories coming out of the South. Also, check out our new website at Reconsouth.com. Follow us everywhere on social media and sign up for our newsletters. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.